Chapter 6 of Little Stories of Merry Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by E. J. Wiley, Seguin, Texas. Little Stories of Merry Life by Mary Stuart Cutting. In the Married Quarters. Mr. Brookton Rivers watched the spark at the end of his cigar as he held the short stub between his thumb and forefinger. It was going out. While he had had that cigar to smoke, his mind had been at rest, for he knew that he was going to sit in that particular angle in the piazza until he finished it, which would be about half-past eight. After that, what? He threw away the cigar and leaned meditatively forward to catch a glimpse of the moon as it rose over the patch of straggling woods next to the Queen Anne cottage opposite him. It showed a deserted piazza and a man and his wife and two small children walking past it. The man walked with the heavy, shoveling steps of a laborer, and the woman, in a white shirtwaist and a dragging skirt, held one child by the hand, while the other, in tiny trousers, toddled bow-leggedly behind. As they vanished down the street, two silent men on bicycles sped past, their little lamps twinkling in the shadows, then half a dozen more laughing and calling to each other, then a swiftly driven buggy that sent the dust flying up on the vines that were already laden with it. The prevailing smell of the humid night was of damp weeds. It was also very hot. There were no lights in the house opposite, nor in the one next to it or in the one next to that, nor were there any, as he knew without seeing, in either of the houses next to his own. From farther down the street came the sound of a jangling piano, obstructed intermittently by the loud, unvaried barking of a melancholy dog. From nearby the persistent wail of a very young infant, protesting already against the existence in such a hot world, became more and more unbearable each instant. Mr. Rivers absent-mindedly killed three feasting mosquitoes at a blow and rose to his feet with determination. He could stay here no longer. Should he go out? or retire to his room in the doubtful comfort of extreme negligee and reed. It will, of course, be evident to the meanest suburban intelligence that the month was August, and that Mrs. Rivers was away, as were most of her immediate neighbors, enjoying a holiday by either mountains or seashore. Rivers could see in imagination how glorious this moonlight became as the waves rolled into its path and broke there on the wet sands into a delicious rush of swirl of silvery sparkling foam. He could smell the very perfume of the sea and feel the cold breath that the water exhales with one's face close down by it, no matter how warm the night. It had been a pretty bad day in town. He was glad, very glad, that Elizabeth had the change. She needed it. He had said this stoutly to himself many times in the last six weeks and knew that it was true. She had protested against going and only yielded at last for the children's sake and in wifely obedience to lawful masculine authority. He had insisted on sleeping in the house alone in defiance of her pleading, alleging an affinity for his own bed, his own belongings, and an individual bathtub. A woman came once a week to sweep and straighten up the house. He had repeatedly declared there would be really nothing to do after business hours but to go around and enjoy himself. He had made her almost envious of these prospective joys. He would take little trips to Manhattan Beach with the boys and go to Bronxville to see Tom Westfield as he had been meaning to for five years, and visit the roof garden with the Danas, who were on from St. Louis, and take dinner at their café, Ruritania. On the between nights he would visit the neighbors. All these things he had done, more or less disappointingly, 
but what should he do tonight? I beg your pardon, Rivers, but have you any paragoric in your house? We've got to get something to quiet the baby. A tall, thin, weird-looking young man had come up the steps, hidden by the vines in which dwellers in mosquito country are wont to picturesquely embower themselves, defiant of results. Why, how are you, Parker? said Rivers cordially. Paragoric is it that you want? Come inside and we'll have a look for it, old man. He led the way, scratching matches as he went to relieve the darkness, dropping them on the floor as they went out, and finally lighting the gas in the butler's pantry. My wife keeps the medicines on the top shelf here to be out of the way of the children, he explained. I don't know about the paragoric, though. I seem to remember that she didn't believe much in using it for babies. We've had a fight with a nurse about it, said the other man, gnawing at the very light mustache as he leaned against the door. But great Scott Rivers, we've got to do something. I would have murdered anybody whose child cried like this one. We've been complained of as it is. That's paragoric, isn't it? It was, but the bottle's empty, said Rivers, who was standing on the rung of a chair, holding out a vial now and then from an inner recess to read the name on it. That's another empty bottle. And here's another empty bottle. And this is another bottle of sewing machine oil. Prescription for neuralgia, 178-902, empty. Bottle of glycerin. Confound the thing. The cork was out of it. Get my handkerchief for me out of my pocket, will you? Prescription for hair tonic. Empty bottle. Another empty prescription bottle. Dregs of cough medicine. What in thunder does Bess want with all these empty bottles? I'm awfully sorry, Parker, but we don't seem to have the stuff you want, or any other for that matter. Never mind, said Parker. I'll ride down to the village and get some. I'd have gone there first, but the tire of my wheel wants blowing up. I'd lend you my wheel, but it's at the shop, called Rivers as they disappeared out of the door. He put the bottles back, upsetting as he did so a package of white powder, out of which ran three cockroaches. As he stooped to gather it up again in the paper, he disturbed a half-eaten peach, which he remembered leaving there the night before, and a small colony of ants that had made their dwelling in it scuttled cheerily around. He uttered an exclamation of disgust and shut the door of the butler's pantry upon them. The whole house seemed given up to a plague of insects, utterly unknown in the reign of its careful mistress. In spite of screens, small stinging mosquitoes whizzed out from everything he touched. Spiders hung down from webs in the ceiling, and a moth had flown from his closet that very morning. He kept the blinds and windows closed while he was away all day. He had begun by leaving them open, but a slanting shower had made havoc in his absence and also flooded the cellar through the open cellar door. It had not dried up since, and he was sure that there were fleas down there. There was a deadly hot damp and silence in the dining room and parlor as he came through them, and the same unnatural atmosphere in the rooms above as he drearily invaded them for a clean collar. Every place was shut up and in order. The tops of the dressing tables even were bare save for the clean towel laid over each. His own room was in an ugly, disheveled confusion, and though his windows were open, no air came through the wire screens. He opened the closet door inadvertently, and the sight of a pink kimono of his wife's and the hats of the two little boys hanging up neatly beside it emphasized his solitude. His latent idea of spending the rest of the evening at home was gone from him. He felt that he could not get out of this accursed house quickly enough, although he had not made up his mind where to go. He did not fill up to cheering the sick man on the next street, 
or equal to a gentle literary conversation with the two elderly ladies beyond who had known his mother. He wanted to go somewhere where he could smoke and have some pleasing light drink for refreshment and be cheered and amused himself. The calendars! If he only had his wheel! It was nine o'clock now, and the place was away over on the other side of town. Never mind, he would go, and chance their being at home and out of bed when he got there. Anything to get away from this loathsome place, although coming back to it again seemed suddenly an impossible horror. He wondered if he were getting ill. The night before, as he walked, the shadows of the moonlight lengthened his long legs and their dragging strides. His face, with its short brown beard and the hollows under his dark eyes, was bent forward. He figured out anew the income there would be from his insurance money, and how it might be supplemented for Bess and the children. Clearly he would have to earn more before he died. And, oh, the burden, the burden, the burden was his. The thought leaped out like a visible thing. Her sweet presence, her curling hair, her dimples, her loving feminine inconsequence with the innocent, laughing faces of the little boys overlaid the daily care for him. But with these appointed lighteners of life away, it loomed up into a hideously exaggerated specter that seemed to have always had its hand upon his fearsome heart and only pressed a little closer upon him now in this hot, windless night. Even his wilted collar partook of the tragic. He might as well have kept on the first one. Hello, hello, where are you going? This is the place. A shout of laughter accompanied the words. Come up, brother, we've been waiting for you. He looked up to see that he was in front of Callender's house, and that the piazza, a large square end of which was screened off into a room, held a company in jovial mood, under moonlight as bright as day. The women were in white, with half-bare neck and arms, rocking and fanning themselves, and the men in tennis shirts and belts, two of them smoking pipes and the other a cigar. A tray, holding a large crystal bowl and glasses, stood on a bamboo table on one side, half shielded by jars of palms whose spiked shadows carpeted the floor and projected themselves across the white dress and arms of Mrs. Callender, while she held the door open with one hand and half welcomed, half dragged him in with the other, amid a chorus of voices. Come in, come in, you're one of us. If you let a mosquito in, take that chair by Mrs. Weir if you feel up to it. She wants to be entertained. I feel up to anything now, said Rivers, taking with alacrity the seat allotted to him, after shaking hands with pretty Mrs. Waring, who lived next door, and her cousin, Mrs. Ware. Same old crowd, I see. A laughter broke out anew as his wandering eyes took tally of the group, and he said, Where's Calendar? And where? What's the joke? Oh, don't ask for any woman's husband or any man's wife, said Mrs. Calendar despairingly, with her graceful figure reclining back in the low chair. Can't you see that we're all detached? Her charming smile suddenly broke forth. It's really too absurd. No, said Rivers, a light dawning on him. Nichols, you don't mean that you are on the waiting list, too. Mr. Nichols, a large man with a grizzled head, nodded and helped himself to the contents of the suggestive bowl. The missus and the kids went off last week. I'm detained for a while longer. As for Calendar, he got a summons from the company, and he's halfway to Chicago by this time, I hope. I came over on purpose to tell his last words to his wife, who didn't want them. 
Ned had already brought them, said Mrs. Callender, turning to the tall, quiet man of the cigar, Mr. Atwood, who was her brother. It's such a mercy that he happened to come on, or I'd have been here all alone. Looks like it, said Mr. Porter, a stout, fair gentleman with a cool gray eye, a bald head, and a gurgling laugh. What do you think, Rivers? These girls here, he waved his hand, had been counting on seeing the whole lot of us tonight, and brewed that lemonade on purpose. "'Everyone has come now but the Martindales,' said Mrs. Ware, a little woman with loosely piled dark hair and a gentle whining voice, occasionally diversified with a surprising shriek of laughter. "'The Martindales! Why, they only returned this evening. I met them on the boat,' said Rivers. "'Yes, we know that, but one of them will be over here just the same,' said Mrs. Callender placidly. "'They'll want to see what we're doing.' "'Do somebody pay a little attention to Mrs. Waring?' She hasn't said a word for half an hour. I believe she's hoping that Henry will be too homesick to stay away. Not quite, said Mrs. Waring, with a little tremble of her lower lip. Nice, kind little woman you are, said Porter severely. Want to enjoy yourself thinking how unhappy Waring is. Well, I'm glad he went, and I hope he'll stay until he's well. If any man needed a change, he did. He would have taken me with him if I could have left the children, murmured Mrs. Waring. "'Yes, the children win every time,' said Porter, with easy philosophy. "'You think you're important, my brothers, until you're confronted with your own offspring, and then you're not in it.' "'I don't see,' said Mr. Nichols, filling his pipe again, "'why a man's family should stay in town and broil because he has to. "'It wouldn't be any satisfaction to me, I know that. "'My little girls write to me every day.' "'I remember,' said Rivers, leaning forward, once when Bess and I took a trip together, we had to come home just when the fishing was at its height, because she imagined what it would be like if a menagerie broke loose and a tiger got at Little Brook when he was asleep in his crib. She said she knew it was perfectly absurd, but she couldn't stand it a moment longer, so we came home. He laughed tenderly at the reminiscence, and the other men laughed with him, but the women, even Mrs. Calder, who had no children, were serious, and Mrs. Ware said, as if speaking for the rest. Yes, one does feel that way sometimes. The men looked at each other and nodded as in the presence of something known of old, something to be smiled at and yet reverenced. The fierce maternal impulses of his wife were divine to Rivers. He loved her the more for her foolishness. It seemed fitting, and all he could expect, that the children would be her passion, as she was his. If he had once dreamed that it would be otherwise, he knew better now. Women were to be taken care of and loved for their very limitations, even if one bore a little sense of loss and soreness forever in one's own heart. What could they know? Why don't you take a vacation, Mr. Rivers? asked Mrs. Ware later as the others had fallen into general conversation. You look as if you needed it. Mr. Nichols says it was dreadful in town today. Forty-seven heat prostrations. Oh, I can't get off, said Rivers, with unconscious weariness in his voice. It makes an awful lot of difference when you're running the business yourself. If I were working for somebody else, I'd take my little two weeks the way my own clerks do, without caring a hang what became of the concern in my absence. I thought I was going to get up to Maine over the 4th, and after all, I couldn't leave in time. It's quite a journey, you know. Bess and the boys were as disappointed as I was, he added conscientiously but they're getting along finally. Sam and Jack are learning to swim, she says. Pretty good for little shavers of five and six. They're as brown as Indians, she says. 
He began to laugh as he repeated confidentially some anecdotes of their prowess to which Mrs. Ware apparently listened with the deepest interested attention that is balm to the family exile, only asking him after a while irrelevantly as he pushed back the hair from his forehead. How did you get that ugly cut on your temple? Even in the moonlight she could see his face flush. Oh, come, Rivers, said Atwood, who was passing. Make up some story for the credit of mankind. Then you might as well have the truth, I suppose, said Rivers, laughing, yet embarrassed. It's really nothing, though. I felt dizzy and queer when I went to bed last night. I suppose it was just the heat, and I have a good deal to carry in a business way lately. I found myself at daylight this morning, lying on the floor with my head by the edge of the bureau, and I don't know in the least how I got there. I have a faint memory that I started to go for some water. I'm all right today, though. It hasn't bothered me a bit. No, of course not, said Mrs. Ware encouragingly. And you don't mind staying alone? She dropped her voice. Oh, no, not at all. Only I don't mind telling you. He looked at her with strange eyes. I hate the house. It's got all the plagues of Egypt in it, and all the hours I've spent alone there are shut up in it, too. I know just how it's going to be when I open that front door and walk in. Stay here tonight, said Mrs. Ware smoothly. Stay here with Mr. Atwood. Mrs. Calder will be delighted to have you. Oh, I can't possibly, said Rivers with decision. I didn't even lock the front door when I came away. I only remembered it a moment ago. And I won't really mind a bit after I'm once back there. It's only the plunge. You're awfully good to me, Mrs. Ware, he added gratefully, but he wanted his wife. He did not want to be confidential with anyone but her. No matter what enjoyment he had in this brief hour, it was bound to fail him at the end. One of the dearest pleasures of married life is the going home together after the outside pleasuring is over. As they all trooped into the dining room for the crabs and salad Mrs. Callender told of as in the ice box, the figure of Elizabeth in her pink kimono seemed to weave in and out among the others. But in another moment he was laughing and talking uproariously with the men while the women, on Mrs. Callender's assertion that the servants were in bed, tucked up their gowns and descended the cellar stairs for the provisions, refusing all masculine assistance. I think it's an eternal shame, said Mrs. Callender, as the three held an excited conclave in cellared seclusion by the open refrigerator. It's just as Celeste said. He's ill. Anyone can see it. Why, he starts whenever he's spoken to. He told Mr. Callender the other day that he'd been horribly worried about business. He's a nervous kind of fellow, and he takes everything too hard. He ought not to be left alone in this way. I think somebody ought to write to her, said Mrs. Waring solemnly, resting the dish of salad on top of the ice box. I think it's perfectly heartless of her to go on enjoying herself when he's ill. She doesn't know it, interrupted Mrs. Callender with rare justice. That's what I say. Somebody ought to tell her. She never seems to think about anything but herself, though, or the children, or clothes. If I thought that Henry, but I'd never leave him this way, never. I wouldn't have a bit of comfort. He's so devoted to his home, just like Mr. Rivers. Do you know, I have a dreadful feeling that something is going to happen to him tonight. If you had heard him talk, said Mrs. Ware with tragic impressiveness. The three women looked at each other silently. Are we going to have anything to eat tonight, or are you girls going to talk until morning? came the steady tones of Porter from the head of the stairs. It's after eleven now. 
goodness said mrs callender hastily completing her preparations yes we're coming you can send ned down to crack some more ice and then we'll be ready but she turned to say i think someone ought to go home with them this is what i call comfort said porter as they sat hilariously around the flemish oak table eating the cool viands and drinking anew from the iced bowl a lacy square of white linen and a glass vase of scarlet nasturtiums gracing the center of the board clear clear comfort i feel at peace with all mankind even with atwood who believes in an imperial policy hush said mrs callender who is that on the piazza the door opened a head was thrust in and a shout arose martindale martindale baal that's holy come in we're expecting you that's mighty good of you said the intruder who seemed to be all red hair and smiles all the same you don't seem to have left much of anything to eat he drew up a chair to the table and sat down where's your wife asked mrs ware oh she had a headache this evening i went out for a ride and when i came back i saw you were on deck over here so i thought i'd look in and see what was up he stopped oblivious to the renewed laughter and stared at rivers why when did you get here i saw a light in your house ten minutes ago i nearly dropped in on you a light in my house exclaimed rivers he rose and the others instinctively rose also with startled glances at each other perhaps your family has come home suggested mrs waring rivers shook his head no i had a letter from bess today saying she had taken the rooms for two weeks more it might have been parker but i don't think so are you sure you saw a light on the lower floor asseverated martindale was the door locked when you came out no all right said atwood briskly porter and i'll go back with you rivers no we don't need you nichols you're tired come upstairs and choose from calendar's arsenal each of those women begged me secretly not to let him get shot whispered porter to his companion as they set off at a jog trot down the street rivers a little ahead i suppose they could sing our requiems with pleasure i know they pounded it into me too they've got some kind of an idea between them that he's coming to harm anything for an excitement we'll get ahead of him when we're a little nearer to the house it looked very dark and still as they reached it the moon had set and the patch of straggling wood stretched out weird and formless the piano the infant the yelping dog had given place to an oppressive silence save for the dismal chirping of insects and the shuddering of a train of coal cars as it backed far off down the track there is no light now said porter the three were drawn up in a line outside the house and even while he spoke the gas flared up bright in the second story the edge of a shadow wavered toward the back of the room then it came forward and disappeared the next moment the shade of the front window was partly drawn up and pulled down again by a round white arm half clad in the loose sleeve of a pink kimono Rivers sat in the big wicker chair with his arms around his little wife. Her head, with its light curls, lay on his shoulder, and both of her hands held one of his large ones as she talked. You are sure you do not mind my coming in this way? No, no, my Betsy, I do not mind. He touched his lips to her forehead and smoothed the folds of her pink gown with the strong, unnecessarily firm touch of a man. But where are the boys? I left them with Alice alice was her sister for another week i couldn't bring them back in this hot weather left them with alice 
Yes, don't talk about it. She colored nervously and then went on. I know they're all right, but if I think about it too much, I'll get silly. As I did about you. But of course it's really different with them, for they have someone to look after them, and Alice will telegraph every day. How did you get silly about me? She clasped and unclasped his hand. I don't know. Yes, I do. It was worse than the time I thought of Little Brook and the tiger. I kept imagining and imagining dreadful things. Last night, I thought you were dead. I saw you falling on the floor. Her voice dropped to a note of horror, and her eyes grew dark as they stared at him. Where did you get that cut on your forehead? Were you ill last night? Did you have a fall? He nodded, gazing steadily at her. I'm all right now. Oh, she said with a long shivering breath and hid her face on his shoulder. Presently she fell to kissing his hand, holding it tight when he strove to draw it away. Then she went on in a smothered tone with a little pause between each sentence. I got here at ten o'clock. I thought you'd never come home. Of course, I knew you were at the calendars. I went to work and cleared up the butler's pantry, or I couldn't have slept here. The house is in a dreadful condition. Yes, don't you care? I don't. I'll have an army here cleaning tomorrow. But, oh, Brookton, she broke off suddenly, don't send me away again. There was a new, passionate ring in her voice. Never send me away again. I've been wild, wild, wild for you. Promise never to send me away again. Let me stay with you always, whatever happens, like this, until we die. A sob caught her by the throat. The strong and tender clasp of his arms answered her. Her trembling ceased. After a silence, he said gently, I'm going downstairs to lock up. She rose, flushing under his smiling eyes as he held her off at arm's length to say, it seems to me you've reached a high pitch of romance after seven years, Mrs. Rivers. Ah, don't, don't, she deprecated. She raised her drooping head and flashed a reckless glance at him, half mirthful, half tragic. Oh, it's dreadful to care so much for any man. Goodness knows what I'll get to in seven more years. End of chapter six. Recording by E.J. Wiley, Seguin, Texas.